By now, you've heard us talk about Path Projects, the innovative running apparel company from California. Path Projects creates designs and technical fabrics that outperform, outstyle, and outrun the competition. Running shorts, baseliners, shirts, and headwear, everything Path Projects builds is the highest quality, timeless in style, and unmatched in price. To enhance their sponsorship of the Fastest Known Podcast and FastestKnownTime.com, Path Projects is giving three people a $75 gift card to be used on PathProjects.com for any product of your choice. To enter is simple. Go to PathProjects.com slash FKT and enter your email address and first and last name. You'll get a bonus entry by following Path Projects on Instagram. Enter now through October 20th, 2020. And thanks Path Projects for the support. Thank you for joining again, the fastest known podcast where we don't mess around. We get right down to business with some of the most interesting people that I personally really enjoy talking with. Today is no exception. I'm talking with Dr. Dirtbag himself, Sean O'Rourke. Welcome, Sean. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, uh, I, I just came right to your nom de plume there, but indeed, that is what your email URL is. That is your website, drdirtbag.com. So uh, where did this come from? Well, actually, I'm looking right at your subtitle on the website. It says, Alpinism Done Fast, Light, and Cheap. So I guess you kind of meant that, didn't you? Uh, I sort of, sort of meant that. So um, how I got into this was basically I, uh, in 2009, I defended my PhD thesis and then pretty much immediately moved into my car. And so uh, the doctor and the dirt bag kind of went together there. And, well, so uh, wait, wait, that was true then. This is not a figure of speech. Did you defend your thesis? You are, do you have a PhD? Uh, yeah, I have a PhD in computer science from uh, UC San Diego. Wow. So you really are. And then you moved into a car. So this this is credible. Other people might appropriate that title, but you really can claim to be Dr. Dirtbag. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's not, not a medical doctor, but uh, but yeah, I, I uh, yeah, I put half my stuff in storage and the other half in the back of my Celica and uh, moved up to the Sierra and slept in a Celica for the whole summer. Wow. You didn't go with a Sprinter van, did you? Uh, no, no, that's uh, that's a, that's a little above my pay grade. Um, that, that wouldn't yeah. be true dirt bag. I think sprinter, a tricked out sprinter van doesn't really deserve dirt bag uh, status. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've joked that if I were, if, if I were on Instagram, I would have to start a hashtag, hashtag car life uh, to distinguish what I do from, uh, from living in a spreader. <laughs> well, we're going to, we're going to follow up on this, how this has worked out, but just so people know, we're not just talking with a any old dirt bag, but you have 18 FKTs on the site and some pretty stout ones there. So I just wanted people to know this is no 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 joke here. And this goes back to the California 14ers all the way up to the Evolution Traverse, which is a very, very stout traverse, uh, high mountain traverse, Pico de Orizaba outside of Mexico City, and most recently this year, White Mountain Range Traverse. So, you, uh, you, do you still live out of your car? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, I'm, I've upgraded to an element at this point, but, uh, but yeah. Uh, I mean, I've, I've lived out of my car about about half the year uh, since 2009. Um, I've, I've tried living out of it in the winters, and um, winter dirt packing is really pretty miserable. I mean, you know, whether you're scraping the condensation off the inside of your windows in the morning or, you know, trying to dry your socks on the dashboard when it's, you know, 30 degrees outside, uh, it's rough. 
Well, <laughs> I need no convincing. <laughs> well, Sean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where to get started. I think we ought to stick with, I just want people to know that, you know, you're an extremely good climber and scrambler, but I'm going to come back to that. Let's, let's stick with the, uh, the dirt bag part. So a PhD is no joke. It takes a lot of work, a lot of commitment, and you just did a 180, didn't you? Because I mean, PhD, it's not just like you're punching in, taking a few classes. So what made you drop that whole scene and move into the car? Um, well, I had, um, so, um, you know, you're growing up, uh, you know, I grew up in Northern New Mexico, uh, you know, did a lot of hiking with the family in Southern Colorado, um, you know, ran, ran cross country, raced bikes. Um, so I've been athletic. And then, um, you know, when I went to undergrad and later graduate school, I moved, you know, away from the mountains and was very focused on academics. Um, and uh, so, you know, when I, when I was in San Diego, I wasn't, uh, you know, particularly enjoying my, my time in the, in the PhD program. Um, and I did a, a summer internship up in, up in Seattle and got out into the Cascades. And that reminded me that, uh, you know, how much I really enjoyed the mountains. Um, and so then, you know, between then, between then and then when I graduated in 2009, um, you know, I was, I was going up from, from Los Angeles at that time, uh, up to the Sierra on weekends, uh, to Bag Peaks. And, um, you know, at the, at the time that I, you know, I, I stuck it out and, and finished the degree. And, and at that time I, you know, I realized that, um, you know, things, things would probably end badly if I, you know, if I kept going on the academic track, you know, with the postdoc and so on. Um, and on the other hand, I really enjoyed, um, you know, getting out, you know, getting out in the mountains and, um, you know, from years as a PhD student, I learned how to live pretty cheaply. Um, and so, uh, I just, you know, I decided, you know, to spend at least that summer just, just bagging peaks and it sort of, uh, it sort of snowballs from there. Wow. Interesting. And you, if you've considered going back, you know, getting a job, making more money, or maybe you have done that during the winters. So what does the lifestyle look like now? Um, so yeah, the lifestyle, uh, so, I mean, I worked a couple of years between undergrad and grad school and, uh, you know, never really sort of, uh, never really sort of developed a taste for expensive things. I've always lived pretty cheaply. Um, and so, you know, between savings that I accumulated there and then sort of odd jobs in the winters, um, yeah, you know, I've managed to, I've managed to support, um, you know, a pretty, a pretty bare minimum lifestyle, um, you know, living out of the car about half the year. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, eventually I, I don't anticipate doing this the rest of my life. I, I, you know, I'm no Fred Becky, but, um, I mean, so far. (laughs) (laughs) That's a, that's a great metaphor, but please go on. Sorry. I had to chuckle, but, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, at least for the last, uh, what, 11 years now, it's been, it's been pretty feasible. And, uh, you know, more recently, um, you know, I've been doing a little, a little bike touring, which has enabled me to, to travel internationally quite cheaply. And so I anticipate, I anticipate doing uh, hopefully more of that uh, once the whole coronavirus thing kind of settles down. Right. Yeah. With the coronavirus, it's, uh, it's a little different. We have to kind of stick a little closer to home. Um, but living out of car is actually okay. That's, I think, isn't it? Does, in terms of having a pandemic, what does that mean to be living out of a car or a van? Is that easier, harder, or about the same? Um, it actually very little changed. Um, I mean, you know, I go into town once a week to to stock up on groceries. Um, and um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, in ter- so in terms of just sort of the, um, yeah. I mean, 
yeah, in terms of just you know living in a car within the lower 48, um, things are basically the same as they always were. Uh, probably the one biggest impact is um, you know indoor spaces where you could hang out, you know, coffee shops, libraries, things like that, are closed, and that becomes more difficult in the winter when you've got you know long dark nights, um, you know, no access to you know to power or to heated space. Um, yeah, it makes things a little rougher, but not significantly different. Okay. All right. Well, I have to ask sort of a simplistic question. I think I think you're happy with what you're doing because with a PhD, you could probably find some other type of employment. Do you recommend this to other people or do you just do what you do and other people can figure it out as they might? Um, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I, I would not recommend it. I mean, I think it, it works for me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm driven to do this. I need to do this. But, um, you know, for people who say, oh, you know, I wish I could, you know, I wish I could travel like you, Sean, or I wish I'd seen all the places you could see. Um, you know, I ask them, what are you willing to give up? It's a trade-off. Well, right. That's a good point. It's a definite trade-off. Um, on September 28th, our podcast guest was Eric Gilbertson, who had done this gigantic route the Rocky Mountain Slam, which is the Colorado 14ers, the Wyoming 13s, the Montana 12s, all in 60 days. And he said similar things to what you just did. He said that uh, when he goes overseas, even if he's going to Kyrgyzstan or the Alps, uh, he said it's actually cheaper than being at home. And he also has done long bike trips, as you have. And he said the same thing. You can take a two-month bike trip I think he went from Alaska down to Montana and he said it's cheaper. It's actually cheaper than sitting at home and paying rent. Yeah. Yeah. So actually I, uh, this, this past winter, I spent uh, three and a half months down in, uh, down in the Andes in Argentina and Chile. Um, and yeah, you know, the, I mean the flight a round trip flight down there is about a grand, uh, food once you get down there is about a third what it is here. Um, living out of a tent. Yeah. It quickly pays for itself. Um, and you know, if, if, it hadn't been for the coronavirus and international travel just sort of chaotically shutting down in mid-March. Uh, I might have stayed down there longer, but you know, I, I had this, you know, panicked mad. My my trip ended with just this mad dash to get back to the states before everything shut down. Right, right. It's funny how that worked out because now it's kind of the other way around. We, we, we I've heard a lot of people who just dashed back, got their last flight in, so that they could get back into the country. But then it sort of reversed as people didn't want us. <laughs> yeah, that 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 is a problem. Uh, I don't know when I'll be able to go to Europe next. Uh, I mean, there, I, I was I was sort of debating with myself when I was I mean, rural Argentina would I, I guessed would have been and turned out, in fact, to be a fairly safe place to be. Uh, but, you know, being a foreigner on an overstayed tourist visa uh, is kind of a dicey situation. Right. Interesting, Eric. Well, thank you for the tips on this, because I think looking for different lifestyles, whether it's being sustainable economically or environmentally or emotionally, are it's an important topic. So we, we appreciate this. Thank you for sharing this. And congratulations on finding something unique that works for you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's been a good run. I've, I've, I've been able to, to, to see and do a lot of stuff that... Um... You know, that, yeah, yeah, that I wouldn't have imagined, you know, 10 years ago. Now, you described to me that you've been involved with FKTs, and you say this on your website as well, 
for a long time. You go back to the original pro boards site that Peter Backwin set up. Um, none of us actually can remember when he did that, but we think it was about 12 years ago, a very primitive template. We used to get, you know, one or two submissions a week or so. Now we get 40 to 50 a day. So you've been doing this a long time. So FKTs kind of were your thing. They kind of, they kind of fell out of peak bagging. Uh, so, um, you know, when, when I, you know, so 2007 through 2009, when I was finishing up school, um, you know, when, when I was, when I was sitting back in LA during the weeks, I would, uh, I would read uh, Bob Bird's trip reports. Who's a, he's a famous, or I don't know, he's, he's a well-known Sierra peak bagger. Um, and, um, you know, his, his mission at the time was to day hike all the peaks on the Sierra peak section list, um, which is this 248 peaks throughout the Sierra. Some of them are really remote and Bob, um, wanted to do them all and didn't enjoy backpacking. Um, and I also don't enjoy backpacking and like to go up peaks. And so kind of inspired by that, you know, I started doing longer and longer days and then, um, you know, to get to even more remote peaks, you know, trying to do sections of them faster. And that just sort of naturally led into a little bit of ultra running and then a few FKTs. Well, good for you. You describe yourself as uh, pretty good. Like you said, you had a background in competitive running at a scholastic level and climbing, but scrambling, peak bagging. You know, you've found, as I think many listeners have and myself personally have, that that combination was sort of the sweet spot for us, that we could move a little faster than climbers and, and run a lot steeper than most runners. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've run, uh, you know, 150 miler in my life. Um, and, you know, partway through it, I just... You know, like, I mean, you know, before the initial, I mean, after the initial part where you're chatting with everyone and before the final part where you're just in coma drive, um, I was just bored for several hours. Um, you know, just, you know, just, I mean, it, it all becomes very mechanical. You know, you're maintaining a pace, maintaining an eating schedule. Um, you know, I'd rather do something that engages my mind a little more. Um, and, you know, scrambling peak bagging does that where you're thinking about your route and thinking about your moves and, and, and so on. Right. Well, you indeed wrote a book and it's called 40 classic scrambles of north america i was sort of hoping this book was e-downloadable but i don't think it is is that correct tell me tell me tell us about this book um so that's sort of uh i mean if you uh is so i mean one one thing i've had the opportunity to do that a lot of people don't um is to travel so so much um and so I was hoping to come up with a list of eventually 50, for now 40, um, of my favorite sort of moderate routes from the Western United States and Canada. Um, the idea, um, you know, so there's, you know, it's kind of inspired by Roper and Steck's 50 Classic Climbs, um, which is uh, these 50 climbs from all over North America that, um, you know, some, I mean, some of them, um, you know, Hummingbird Ridge on Logan has never been repeated. Shiprock is technically illegal. Um, they're, they're, they, 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 some of them have stood the test of time better than others. Um, and no one has actually, and no one has actually climbed all of them. So, oh, um, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. The, so the smileys, there's this couple, uh, Janelle and someone smiley who right. worked on it they're, Yeah. They're up in the forties somewhere, but no one has actually finished the list. I didn't know that. Well, for our listeners who do not know the Roper Steck book, 50 Classic Climbs of North America is a classic itself. The book is a classic. The list is a classic. And Sean, as you 
um, allude to, the list is is crummy. <laughs> and so they, they managed to do this amazing book uh, that's just you know, this co- coffee table book, at least for people older than 20 years old. But the mix, it's, I'm not, it's not in front of me, but it's a funky mix. You know, it's like Big Wall in Yosemite, Hummingbird Ridge. They have you know, stuff up there in the, the Canadian Yukon. And then they have, you know, you know, climbs, you know, five, seven rock climbs in the Sierras. So it's a very, very odd list. It's not exactly a bucket list. Yeah. So, I mean, it requires not only an enormous range of skills, but also just a huge investment of time and money. Uh, I mean, you're mounting expeditions to the Alaska Range or the Yukon or whatnot. Um, and, you know, in contrast, you know, my book is, is all, or my, my list, um, you know, is all things that you can do um, or, you know, that I've done, you know, car to car in a day. Um, so, you know, it, yeah, it basically just requires a car and some fitness and, um, you know, some, some reasonable climbing ability. Right. Well, I could tell you modeled it uh, after the uh, classics, after, after this book, which I was familiar with. But now I made me want to go and have a quick look. And like you say, Mount St. Elias, Mount Fairweather. Whoa. And Denali Cassine Ridge. My God, you don't want to do the Cassine Ridge. That's that's just terrible. And then you, oh, pardon me for my little editorializing. But then you get into True classics, Mount Sir Donald, which you've done, I noticed, Bugaboo Spire, East Ridge. That's really good stuff, right? Yeah. I think when you get down into the States, it kind of looks, you know, it starts to become the classics that you would think of, right? And I I can see that. Uh, You know, and you go to the Valley, you know, Royal Arches. Okay. All right. Great. That sounds pretty good. But then you have Salathe Wall. Hmm, that's a little different. So it's 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 all over the place. It's unclear. <laughs> well, sorry guys, but it's unclear to me how they came up with this list. They they do talk about that a little bit in the book, and it sounds like they just sort of pulled their friends. Um, so there's no sort of single you know single editorial vision to the thing. Okay, well I believe that, but you do have a single editorial vision, which is you can do it in a day. You don't have to, you know, sell the Toyota Corolla to go do the route. And indeed, on your front piece, this looks, let me check it out. Yeah, this is the East Ridge of Wolf's Head up in the Circa the Towers Wind River Range. Love that thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the East Ridge of Wolf's Head. I, uh, I did that on site about uh, six years ago fantastic route it got my attention let me put it that way yeah yeah there's that that one move where you're traversing out to the right and you kind of have to climb up and there's yeah the hands aren't really that great yeah the finger traverse right it's like really i kept looking around at both sides of the ridge i kept thinking this this isn't on route this no i this can't be it yeah, but I mean, you know, for I mean, for five six, there's just such variety and such amazing position. I yeah, I love that. That was uh, it's been too. I should go up that go up there and do it again some year. So your list, I'm enjoying looking at it, and of course, like all lists, we could debate it endlessly, right? But that's that's okay. You, you can't argue lists too much because uh, they go on forever. It's like fifty best albums, fifty best movies of all time. Okay. But uh, you think 
you, why did you stop at 40 since you were somewhat inspired by the 50 classics? Why did you stop at 40? Uh, there were a number of routes that I haven't done yet that I've heard really good things about. Uh, so there's, um, you know, the, the ridge on Edith Cavell, um, a walk in the park in Rocky Mountain. Um, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to leave some room for a number of things that I have yet to climb. Because uh, uh, I mean, part of the part of the premise of the book is of the book is I don't put anything in there that I haven't done myself. Got you. Okay, well that makes sense. Oh man, we, so, we should we have to we have to stay away from this topic because I'm looking at your list. I'm thinking, well, I got some suggestions for you. No, no, br bring them, bring them. Um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully next summer I'll be able to to get to a lot of stuff. Um, so the yeah, the idea would be that uh, the idea is that that a second edition then would expand it to fifty. And hopefully I can find a, a, a cover photo that's similar enough to the cover photo for Roper and Steck's second edition. You'll notice um, that the photo I chose is actually of, of, uh, of Bob Bird in, in northern Yosemite. It's a little bit like the, the photo on the blue edition of the Roper and Steck. Nice. Good for you. Well, the only thing that jumps out at me is you had this broken down by areas, of course, and the western desert. And uh, Zion National Park appears to be somewhat... Uh, lacking. Yeah, I just have not spent that much time there. <laughs> okay. Well, as they say, the sandstone Yosemite is what they call it. And the summits in Zion, people always go into the canyons. The canyons are absolutely world-class, but the summits of Zion National Park are unbelievable. So we could talk about that offline. I come to think of it, I'm not sure who I could even get on this podcast besides Jared, who would be... Uh, knowledgeable on this. So I'll, I'll send you a few thoughts and maybe we'll see this in your second edition. Oh, look, yeah. Look, look forward to just trying some new stuff. Well, thank you very much for um, giving me a little, uh, giving me a little space there. I appreciate that. So what's, what's up here? I'm looking at the FKT range here and it's remarkable. You've done an amazing job, everything out West, of course, but uh, that certainly makes sense mostly uh, in the Northwest and California. And did you just drive to all these locations in your car and just get out and bag these big summits? Uh, pretty much, yeah. I mean, you know, each summer I'll kind of, um, I'll usually plan out my summer around, um, you know, around, around a handful of projects. And then, um, you know, at least until this year for, for the last, you know, for going back a number of years, I've spent, you know, part of June in the, in the Tetons, um, you know, the climber's ranch there, and then sort of made my way, uh, you know, tour of the West and tour of uh, various tours of the West, um, after that. Right. Well, that makes perfect sense. So what about, uh, tools and techniques? It's a question that, uh, other podcasts ask, and I realize I haven't done it that much, but when we have experienced people like you, I think it'd be fun to share with the listeners some methods and materials that have really worked for you. So, for example, Eric Gilbertson told me that he just uses peakbagger.com on his phone. Yeah. I had never done that. So is it, do you use that or what do you use for navigation? Oh, yeah. So I use, um, yeah, yes, yeah, so peakbagger is, is great because it let, gives you offline maps, um, both, you know, both in the United States and internationally. So, um, you know, for, for, you know, and, um, you know, the, the peak coverage, um, you know, is variable, but it's better than, you know, most, uh, than pretty much anything else you can find other than sort of local guidebooks. Um, you know, I, I supplemented down in, uh, 
down in South America, I supplemented uh, the Peak Bagger app with uh, this this app Maps.me, which does uh, you know basically roadmaps and routing offline based on OpenStreetMaps. Um, and so that would kind of get me from town to town or trailheads. And then I could use the top the topos in Peak Bagger to to actually figure out where I am on the mountain. Could you repeat what you use down in South America? Uh, so it's a combination of Maps.me for um, OpenStreetMap-based offline sort of city-to-city navigation, and then Peak Bagger for the topos. Okay. Would Maps.me work in other parts of the world? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a global thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I heard about it from, um, uh, yeah, from European bike tourists while I was down there. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, well, they're hardcore. <laughs> I've met some of them. It's like... Oh. Oh yeah, really? Yeah, you're going really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there was the guy who had uh, you know toured through Ethiopia and Sudan and Iran and um, yeah, this this amazing Irish guy I met who had I'd been pretty much everywhere that you wouldn't want to go except North Korea. Right. A friend of mine was biking from uh, Saint Petersburg down to Venice on this uh, little mini group tour. Like ten people on this little mini group. And one of the members just decided to bike to the start from his home in Belgium. So, <laughs> yeah, the long-distance bikers make us long-distance hikers just look like couch potatoes. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, the number, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you meet more people than you'd think, um, you know, biking from Tierra del Fuego up to Alaska. Like, that's a thing. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, you, now that you mentioned that, you reminded me that in Santiago, I think there's a hostel that specializes in bike packers. And at that hostel, I met someone who did that very thing. Um, the, the entire length of the Americas. Yeah, it's, um, I forget, there is, there is an FKT for that. I think it, I think it may be under a year. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's, you, you have to time it just right to hit the seasons. Um, but yeah, I was hearing from another biker that someone had done just a, a sick number of miles per day doing that. <laughs> right. And they're very good mechanics as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, you know, I, I'm used to doing my own bike work, but nothing really fancy. And um, yeah, you have to be, I mean, you're going through, you know, lots of remote terrain, particularly in Argentina and these little tiny towns. And so you have to be able to, you have to have a very reliable bike and be able to take care of a lot of it yourself. Well, Sean, I have a theory about this and I want to, because you're more experienced than I am. You've been out there much more than I have, particularly this past 10 years, but I had developed a theory a number of years ago. I was kayaking in the sea of Cortez and um, went by this sailboat and they say, would you like some fish? And of course I had this crummy food because we were camping on the beach and they gave us this fresh caught sea bass and we went, wow, thanks. Now they had some teenage daughters who then camped out next to us on the beach. And so I went over and talked to them and, you know, this is nowheresville. This is on an island in the Sea of Cortez. And turns out they were being homeschooled they had a little satellite there. They had an early edition of photovoltaic panels and a water purifier. And this was just a family of four. And as it turns out, there's tens of thousands of people doing this. And we don't know about it. 
<laughs> so that's my theory. You see what I mean? We're in our own bubble. We think we're normal, which I, in a certain sense, statistically speaking, we are. But there's tens of thousands of people like these long distance bikers, these around the world sailors who are off the grid. There's way more of them than we are aware of because they're off the grid. So we're sitting here typing away on Instagram and, you know, on Facebook, and they're out there doing something else entirely, and we do not know about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this uh, this this, Ir- this Irish guy I met who you know spent a good part of his adult life bike touring, I, you know, he doesn't have a website. He just, I mean, you know, he does it for him, and that's enough. Um, I mean, I think another, another factor maybe that, um, you know, I mean, like Americans don't seem to, um, you don't don't seem open to taking big chunks of time off. Uh, I mean, on, on a right. previous trip to South America, you know, I went to Peru for what, like eight weeks or something, and uh, you know, I thought, you know, I was you know, I was pretty stoked to be down there for so long, and then I meet the other Euro, the Euros in the hostel, and they're all there for like at least three months, and they look at you know my little eight weeks is kind of a kind of a pathetic thing. Um, I mean, they're you know whether it's between university and jobs or between jobs or just you know taking a leave. Um, you know, they're willing to take enough time off to actually really sort of immerse themselves in that, in the culture and in that lifestyle. You are so right. I've made that same observation. You mentioned eight weeks and they think that was kind of puny. Eight weeks. You tell, (laughs) you tell a working person from the United States, you took eight weeks. That means you just quit your job. Yeah. Yeah. The standard here is two, which the euros are just flabbergasted by. And if you've worked your fingers to the bone, maybe three weeks paid vacation, but other countries that's considered paltry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the idea of going back to a job or if I stayed there for five years, I'd get bumped up from two weeks to three, to three weeks off. Um, I couldn't live like that. Right. Well, I, when I was in Nepal one time, I met a couple of Aussies and, you know, they were just, you know, crushing it all over Southeast Asia. I was just listening to where they had been, what they were doing. And i if I was wondering, well, what was this? This sounds like a trust funder, right? That's what in America, that's what they would be. They would have inherited some wealth and now they're just out using the money and traveling around. No, they were Aussies, which means he had worked as a waiter for six months, put the money in his pocket. Now he was just taking three months to go travel around Southeast Asia. Then he's going to go back and you know take a job, uh, you know, at the cash register. That's what they did. It's a different sense of time than we have. Yeah. A different sense of time and, and, and not, and not sort of that expectation that you immediately jump into a career and, you know, into this, into this life that's planned from, you know, when you get out of school until 65, when you retire and use what little is left of your life. Um, well, you are Dr. Dirtbag. So thank you for, uh, chatting with me about this, Sean. Uh, I haven't had these thoughts in some time. I think it's kind of fun to revisit the topic of what does it take to live a economic and emotionally sustainable lifestyle. And you are one American who is, I think, near as I can tell, succeeding at that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, hopefully some, hopefully people take, you know, you know, you know, not to, not necessarily, you know, blindly, definitely don't blindly follow in my footsteps, but, you know, take some inspiration or, you know, I'll, you know, hopefully it gives some, opens some people's eyes a little bit that there are alternatives. Right. 
So again, thank you for the perspective on this, the possibilities here, people listening. It's always good to keep a broader perspective of what is possible. But as we kind of start to wrap away from that, we should talk about some of the mountains you've climbed, I think, because it's a, a stellar list here. And I mentioned a few of them, but what would you have to say? What jumps out at you, whether it's a singular experience, something that stunned you or scared the heck out of you or was a huge mistake or something that you thought was really good and you'd like to do more of? Uh, it's a big list here, 18 FKTs. What uh, what highlights would you like to share, Sean? Okay, so, so of the FKTs... Uh... I mean, the, the first one, uh, the first one I put up on the site was the California 14ers, which I'm, I'm really surprised that, um, you know, that no one's beaten that yet. But, um, but yeah, so, you know, going that, that's something actually that Bob Bird sort of planted in my head, um, you know, after I met him at the Sierra challenge. So, you know, in 2009, 2010, and it took me a few years to sort of work up to it because, um, you know, looking at it, I saw, you know, Hans Florin had the record. I knew who Hans was, you know, he had the record on the nose, like fast, famous guy, um, but, you know, sort of how I approached that was, you know, I did the math and, you know, I saw that, um, you know, if you take, you know, the, the way he did it and sort of reorganize the sections that he did it, um, you know, if you stayed up for a little over two days, um, you know, it was easy to knock a lot off of his time. And, you know, I just say, so, you know, do the math. And then I, you know, I tell myself that, you know, the Race Across America guys start by staying up for three days on a bike nonstop. So that's well within human possibility. Um, so, you know, this, this is actually, you know, you, you know, once I got past sort of the, you know, there's no way I can beat, you know, this well-known super fast guy and just like worked it out. I realized, you know, I, I can, I actually might be able to do this. Um, so that, you know, th that, that's one that sort of comes to mind. Um, well, let me just note here that you're right. This was 2012, two days, 14 hours, and it still stands and of course, Hans, well, you beat his time by a day. And this isn't really Hans's thing. We should say that. But Hans, wow, <laughs> Mr. Speed Climb himself. He wrote the book on speed climbing. He held the nose speed record probably seven different times. So that's, that's, uh, that's credible to have done something faster than Hans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he was, yeah, he was nice enough to congratulate me when I did it. And, um, then yeah, yeah, it's not, I mean, yeah, his, you know, I mean, it would take me, you know, seven years to, to get up, uh, you know, to get up the nose and he does it in the what, two and a half hours or something. So, um, we all have our specialties. Right. And you were, I'm, before I interrupted you, you're about to give us another thing that comes to your mind. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so, I mean, then, you know, another, um, another traverse sort of outside of, uh, outside of the realm of FKT. Um, well, okay. Yeah. Maybe we can get to that later. Um, yeah. Another, I mean, another one that came to my, came to my mind that, you know, wasn't an FKT just cause I was out there just doing stuff was, um, you know, the first time, so 2014 was the first year I went up to, went up to Canada and, um, you know, I came, you know, up, um, you know, up to Vancouver and then kind of went over the Trans-Canada and there's this, um, you, you get out of Revelstoke and you, you know, take the road up to Rogers Pass, which goes through the Selkirks and you come around this bend and bam, you know, this perfect wedge of Mount Sir Donald just hits you in the face. You know, it's like mm. 2,300 vertical feet of fourth to low fifth class climbing up this ridge and it's just right there on the skyline. 
And um, yeah, you know, so I, you know, I got up and, you know, didn't really know what I was doing because I was new to Canada and, you know, found a trailhead parking lot and slept at it and no one bothered me. And then um, went up the trail in the morning, um, you know, wanting to do Sir Donald and um, you know, came to a junction and I, it said, you know, I forget something one way, something the other way. And I picked the one that I thought was obviously heading in the wrong direction or heading in the right direction. I, I'm sorry. And, um, you know, then I got up out of the trees and I realized, oh, you know, Sir Donald's way over there. Uh, so I'd actually taken the wrong, um, the wrong trail. And so I was just, okay, what the heck? Um, you know, I'll see what this leads to. And so I got up uh, to the summit of, of Avalanche Peak, which is the peak, um, you know, several peaks over toward the, toward the highway from Sir Donald, and then just sort of made my way along the ridge and uh, finished on Sir Donald. Um, and, um, you know, I didn't know anything in particular about these peaks. Um, but, you know, it, it gave me, you know, both, I mean, it was both, you know, incredible climbing with, you know, just scenery that we don't have in the lower 48. Um, and then, you know, also, also huge confidence boost, you know, if I just, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of new to this country and to this mountain range, but, you know, I've developed these skills over years uh, in the lower 48. And, um, you know, if I use my head, I can, um, you know, I can apply these skills, uh, you know, in, in, in new settings and actually be successful. Gotcha. You develop your skill set. Yeah, it's been, uh, yeah, it's, you know, an incremental process over years, you know, starting out hiking and then, you know, going out and buying an ice axe and crampons and then, you know, hiking on a little bit of snow and, um, yeah, just, you know, uh, as, as a friend of mine said, you know, pushing it, not forcing it, um, you know, not, um, you know, taking big leaps, but just, you know, adding small elements, um, you know, going from, say, the Colorado Rockies, which are pretty friendly to the Tetons, which are somewhat less friendly, um, you know, and then to the North Cascades, which can be downright unfriendly. <laughs> and then the Canadian Rockies, which are fairly serious. Yeah, yeah, that, um, yeah, they can... Yeah, they can be serious in a number of ways. Uh, I mean, that was sort of my first real encounter with, um, you know, with, with, with serious glaciers, like sort of non-trivial glacier travel is just sort of, is just sort of a given um, in the Canadian Rockies for, um, you know, for the, you know, for, particularly uh, once you get north of the Trans-Canada Highway. Um, and, uh, you know, versus, um, you know, in the lower 48, uh, you know, Rainier, Baker, um, you know, those are serious glaciers. Most of the other glaciers in the North Cascades are, you know, pretty small and, and uh, um, you know, particularly late in the season, um, easy to navigate. Right. But north of the Transcan, it's different. I think somewhere I heard that you had done Robson. Uh, twice. Yeah. So the, the, the first time I did Robson was, um, was actually a really scary experience. Um, so I, uh, this is my first time up there. You know, I had you know, this list of peaks that I wanted, you know, I, you know, Assiniboine, um, Edith Cavell, which I still haven't done, Robson. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I got up there, um, and, you know, you know, again, you know, slept at the trailhead and, you know, got up super early and started toward Robson. I couldn't really tell, you know, cause the way the sun rises so slowly up there, what the weather is like, and, you know, Rob climbing Robson, you look at it from the visitor center and it's just like, it's 10,000 vertical feet of peak there. It's, it's a right. massive thing. And so it's like 5,000 feet of, you know, cascade style bushwhacking and then like 5,000 feet of talus and snow above that. Um, and so, you know, I, I took the, the, the standard route that time and, um, you know, it's, you know, the first nine, so like 5,000 feet of brush 
and another 4,000 feet of just horrible rotten rock. Um, and then like the last, you cross this, this ice saddle and then it's um, snow and ice from there to the summit. And so right as I got to the ice saddle, um, you know, the, uh, the, the cloud layer kind of was starting to lower a little bit. I thought, oh, hell, you know, I've come 9,000 feet. I'm going to finish this off. I'm all the way up. You know, when am I going to be back here? And so, I, you know, I climbed basically into this cloud. And, um, you know, sort of as I'm, as I'm going up getting near the top, I'm realizing, you know, this is not super great. You know, I mean, this is 2014. This is before I had a smartphone or any sort of GPS navigation thing. So I'm kind of, you know, kicking a little, you know, doing, making a little extra effort to like kick with my crampons to make myself a track I'll be able to follow. Um, and so I get to what I think is the top and, um, you know, I, you know, I kind of wander around a little bit and can't find a higher point. Um, and, you know, I'm basically just, you know, inside a ping pong ball, uh, I mean, it's just all grayish white all around me. Um, you know, my summit photo, <laughs> the summit view was, you know, my two tools planted in what I thought was the summit and then just gray. Um, and so, yeah, I turn around and, um, you know, by then it's, you know, started snowing. And so, you know, my tracks are of course gone. And so I'm retracing what I think is my line. And then I reach, you know, an edge. Okay. That's not right. Um, and so I spent probably an hour, you know, I, I didn't have enough clothes, you know, I wasn't going to survive out there overnight. And so I had, you know, spent, you know, basically a couple hours sort of down climbing, um, through the, the summit glacier, you know, sort of you know, reaching the edge of a crevasse and you know, nope, you know, go back up, try to go around, go down, um, you know, all the while, you know, wondering, you know, okay, well, I'd be able to reverse the route I took. Um, and eventually I did have to make one irreversible jump across the crevasse. Um, but I did finally make it back down to rock and then, and then home. Uh, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. committing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, it's, it's committing. And, uh, now I, yeah, I learned, um, you know, now whenever I get toward that kind of situation, I'll start taking a track on, on the GPS. And that, um, yeah, that saved my butt on Waskaran uh, a couple of years ago. Well, I should note to listeners, Mount Robson is the highest point in the Canadian Rockies, even though few people have actually heard of it. And because it's fairly far north in Canada, most people have never seen it. You have to kind of drive up there to see it. So good job. Good job, Sean. Robson is... Uh, a solid objective. So you've, uh, you've mixed it up quite well. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And I actually went back and did the, did the cane route and had just beautiful, perfect weather on the summit. And yeah, the, I mean, the summit view of Robson, I mean, you're looking down on everything, but, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just a beautiful mountain. So my standard question is what is next? Obviously there's this global pandemic that changes people's plans and it is now uh, the end of September, although this podcast won't be heard and released until early October. And so you might be making particular plans for the winter. What might they be? Oof. So this, yeah, this winter is hard. Um, so I was hoping, uh, my, my, my plan pre-COVID was to go down to, was to go back down to Argentina and Chile, uh, because Basically, I saw kind of the middle half of the countries, and I wanted to go back and visit the northern and southern halves, or the northern and southern quarters, basically. Um, and that's almost certainly not happening now. Um, so yeah, the, yeah, this winter, um, you know, um, most mostly just sort of smaller objectives. Uh, I mean, if um, you know, hopefully doing some 
doing some research and uh, maybe some background interviews for the second edition of my book, um, doing some skiing, hopefully this uh, early spring in the Sierra Nevada. Um, but really, I, I don't, um, there might be some, there might be one or two sort of mixed sport um, FKTs I might go for, uh, but that's, you know, I'm, I can bike, but I'm not a fast cyclist. So that kind of um, things that are really cycling heavy, I don't really have a chance at. So you're not going for bad water to Whitney? Ah, uh, that, I, I, I think Ryan is enough of a faster cyclist than I am that, that I wouldn't be able to make it up on the, on, on, on the, the hike up Whitney. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll probably be out there, so I might, I might give it a try just for the heck of it. Uh, you know, I might see if there's something else, um, that I can think of that's interesting that would grab my attention in the whites. Um, so you mentioned earlier this year, I did that, um, that traverse from, uh, you know, from boundary to white mountain. Um, what I was really hoping to do there was to, to set down a time for, for closing the loop all self-powered. So I'd stashed a bike up at, uh, the bank, up, up at the, the gate where people normally hike white mountain. And, um, you know, I was going to then, you know, bike down, you know, bike down to highway six and bike back to my car. And I just sort of ran out of energy. Um, so, I mean, that, that's something I could do, uh, you know, if California stops being on fire soon enough. <laughs> it might take the first uh, winter storm, which has not arrived yet. I think they're waiting for that up in Oregon and Washington as well. Yeah, that really. So, I mean, I had... Um, I, I'd, I'd sort of put together, you know, this, this summer is sort of scrambled for me and, um, I'd sort of put together some late season plans in the Sierra and then, um, yeah, everything caught fire and now it's like unhealthy to be outside there, which is why I'm in Colorado. Well, good for you, Colorado. Uh, we had fires too. We had four fires there. Summer's still burning, but the smoke wasn't, well, the smoke was bad, but it's mainly coming from California and Oregon. Yep. And, uh, of course, Interstate 70 west of Glenwood Springs was closed for two weeks. Yeah, it was a tough year. It still is a tough year for many reasons. Yeah, which, I mean, that, that really, um, that, yeah, it really impressed me was uh, Eric Gilbertson's, I mean, he had some international plans, and he managed to sort of scramble his plans and still pull off that incredible tri-state thing just sort of, um, you know, just sort of at the last minute. I thought that was a really cool sort of um um, you know, really cool save of the season. Right. I agree. Well, well, doctor, this has been a delightful conversation. I appreciate both your perspectives of some of the lovely mountains out West that you've done going South of the border sometimes. And the fact that a dirt bag lifestyle can be, uh, well, what should I say? It can be had by all who are willing to make the leap. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's fair. I look forward to hearing what comes next, Sean. All right. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time to talk. At Athletic Brewing Company, our innovative process allows us to brew great tasting craft beer without the alcohol. From IPAs to stouts to golden ales and more, our beers are made with organic grains and start at only 50 calories. Now you can enjoy the refreshing taste of great beer anytime, anywhere. No matter your motivation, if you want to keep a clear head and drink healthier, Athletic Beers are here for you. Place an order today at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more.